Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast series Hate Crime on the Two Islands. This project seeks to explore key aspects of the law reform processes with respect to hate crime that are occurring in England and Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland and Ireland. My name is Mark Waters and I'm a Professor of Criminal Law and Criminology at the University of Sussex and with me is my colleague and co-host Professor Jennifer Schwepp who is an Associate Professor at the University of Limerick. With our special guests each week who bring a fresh perspective to the issue, we explore themes and developments across our two islands to inform debate and practice. Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast series Hate Crime on the Two Islands. The project seeks to explore key aspects of law reform processes with respect to hate crime that are occurring in England and Wales, Ireland, Northern Ireland and Scotland. My name is Mark Walters and I'm a Professor of Criminal Law and Criminology at the University of Sussex and with me is my colleague and co-host Professor Jennifer Schwepp who is newly appointed Associate Professor at the University of Limerick. Hello, Jennifer. How are you today? I am marvellous, Mark. How are you? I'm very well. Our listeners might be interested to know that in uh, today's topic, which is what frameworks work best when legislating for hate crime, Jennifer and I uh, almost disagree on every aspect of this (laughs) topic. So we should be having some pretty fruitful and robust discussions today along with our guests So as I said, in today's session, we're looking at frameworks for legislating for hate crime. In other words, we're going to be asking what types of models and legal tests are best suited to tackling hate crime in law. So, for instance, in some jurisdictions, such as Northern Ireland, the type of law used is a sentencing provision which allows a judge to aggravate a sentence post-conviction, i.e. judges can add a bit more onto the sentence for the so-called hate element of a crime. England also uses such provisions, but in addition, it has created specific aggravated offences. So, for example, there exists the offence of racially aggravated assault, which carries a higher maximum penalty compared with the basic offence of assault. And then finally, in Scotland, they use what's been referred to as a hybrid approach, whereby any offence on the statute book can be prosecuted at trial as an aggravated offence. And if it's proved beyond reasonable doubt, the judge must aggravate the sentence, but within the range for the basic offence. Finally, then, in Ireland, there is no legislative framework and addressing the hate element of a hate crime is left to the discretion of the judge at sentencing. Okay, all that sounds very confusing. And we are going to discuss each of these in more detail with our very special guest today, Professor James Chalmers, who is Regius Professor of Law at the University of Glasgow and is the co-author, along with Fiona Leverick, of the report on hate crime law for the Scottish government called, very aptly, a comparative analysis of hate crime legislation. Welcome, James. Thank you, and uh, g- great to see both of you. Looking forward to hearing more of these disagreements you've referred to earlier. It's all very good-natured, I promise you. We have the most fascinating WhatsApp conversations <laughs> about legislative frameworks for hate crime. We are just so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if anyone could see uh, our WhatsApp uh, messages, I think they might be bored to tears, but we find it <laughs> fascinating. 
so James, in your uh, analysis of hate crime laws, you outlined some of the key benefits and limitations of the different approaches that have been taken. Can you perhaps just outline what some of those benefits and limitations are for us? Absolutely. Well, if you start off from, to take your initial example of simply aggravating the, the sentence, the, the attraction of this from, I think, a legislator's point of view, is this is something which can be very easily done. There's, there's a range of jurisdictions around the world which have simply introduced a provision saying a hate element, however you define that, is something to be taken into account in sentencing. So you have some jurisdictions where the, the hate crime legislative framework is literally a line in the statute. There's an aggravating factor and, that, and, and that's it. Now, the disadvantage there is that there's little... There's little formal recognition given to that. So one thing that Fiona and I have written about more, more generally in, in our work is the, the idea of labelling, of, of, of fairly or appropriately labelling a crime that somebody's convicted of. If you simply take into account um, the hate element of sentencing, you're often not reflecting the fact, formally acknowledging the fact somebody is guilty of a hate crime. And that's where other models, such as the hybrid model, have some advantages because they, they formally recognise you, you've got that hate element there. Or the aggravated sentencing uh, model, where you are, you're actually increasing the sentencing range and, uh, and saying this is not just something that you, you take into account, it's actually something that increases the powers of the, of, of the court. And that, that gives a, an element of teeth to hate crime legislation, which simple sentence aggravation uh, doesn't do. And simple sentence aggravation, of course, may mean you, you're not generating any data on the way in which the, the legal system is dealing with hate crimes anyway. The advantage of something like the Scottish model, the, the hybrid model, is you are, you are getting that formal recognition. It's also something which is one advantage uh, for from the Scottish perspective, about just fitting this into the existing legal system. Aggravations are a very well-established part of Scottish criminal law in a way that they're not all, all, always elsewhere. So when this legislation was first introduced, it was a much easier sell to police, to prosecutors, to legislators. Uh, people knew what this concept was. This was just a new version of it. That's not always the case when you're proposing hate crime legislation elsewhere. Thanks for that, James. I wonder if you could just remind our listeners or tell our listeners what precisely is the difference though between for example the racially aggravated offences in English law compared to how the law works in Scotland so if you have an offence such as an assault that's aggravated by some form of identity-based hostility in English law it's prosecuted as an offence how is that different to the way it works in Scotland then? The difference in, in, in Scotland here is that there, there are not these aggravated offences, with the exception of, of a standalone offence of, of racially aggravated harassment, but we don't have offences of racially aggravated assault, for example. And that's interesting because this legislative framework um, came in at the same time, more or less. It, it came in when there wasn't a, a Scottish Parliament. So there was a difference here in the way that um, a policy choice made by the, the new Labour government was implemented north, north and south of, of the border. The difference with a, a racially aggravated assault type offence, as we've said, is you're, you're increasing the maximum penalty of the range of sentencing options uh, uh, that's available to the judge is different. The reason we didn't go for that uh, type of approach to Scotland is it, it simply wouldn't have made the same practical difference it makes south of the border. And that's because uh, Scottish criminal law then and, and, and still now is a more unstructured, a less structured system. 
there's a greater reliance on, on common law offences, which are still not defined in statute. So there is a single offence of assault, for example, and the sentencing powers attached to that offence of, of assault are simply whatever powers the court has. So if you prosecute uh, assault in our, our highest court, the, the High Court of Judiciary, the maximum sentence is already life imprisonment. There therefore is, is no value to, to prosecutors or, or to the courts providing increased sentences because you, you can't do it. The maximum sentence is, is, is as high as possible. So I think that's the main reason why we've not, in our own system, introduced these enhanced sentence provisions. It, it reflects the underlying system that you're grafting the criminal onto, where the sentencing powers are actually very flexible to begin with. Okay, so that makes sense. But how how is it different then to the Northern Irish approach then, where they have the aggravated element at the sentencing stage? How is it different from the Scots law approach? It's different, I think, to, to the extent that aggravations of Scots law always have been very clearly recorded uh, on, on the criminal record. It's not simply part of the background or part of the charge. Somebody is convicted of an assault that is aggravated in some way. So leaving aside the, the hate crime framework, because we have this single very broad offence, we've always recognised things like assault, aggravated by the use of a weapon, uh, assault which is aggravated because it's to the danger of life. And that person is very clearly convicted of assault to the danger of life, uh, assault to severe injury and permanent disfigurement, those, those sorts of, of, of situations where the, the conviction is, is a different one but with this one underlying cr criminal offence. And that's a, a way of getting around the fact that basically our category of, of assault as a criminal offence is basically too broad. But once you allow aggravations to be attached to it, you can start to make sense of what somebody has been convicted of without simply looking at the, the sentence that has been imposed. Could I ask you then, James, so, so you said that you know, what, what Mark describes, I think, is the hybrid approach that, you know, the Scottish approach, this, this single provision, which then is applied across a range of offences. Why is there that separate offence, that particular offence um, that was created alongside the, the general provision? What, what, what is particular or what was particular about the ratio aggravated harassment in, in the legislation? This is, this is a good question because to some extent this now appears to be lost in the midst of time. So we, we quite recently had a review of hate crime legislation in, in Scotland, the, the Brackadale Review or the, or the Independent Review of Hate Crime Legislation in Scotland, leading to a consolidated legislative framework. And one thing that review did recommend was getting rid of the racially aggravated harassment offence. It was felt that it didn't serve a clear purpose and actually it was quite difficult to establish what the purpose might be. One reason potentially uh, for that offence is that harassment in the 1990s when the offence was created was not a clearly established category of, of, of criminal offence in, in Scotland. We, we didn't have a criminal offence of, of harassment as elsewhere in the UK. We had a general offence uh, of breach of the peace, which could mostly cover har harassment, but not always quite clearly. We do now have a separate statutory offence of threatening and abusive behaviour. And I think the, the, the view of the review was we could simply now use that offence and regard that as, as aggravated where appropriate. This offence might have been justified as, as a way of, of making sure that police and prosecutors treated uh, racially aggravated harassment seriously in a, in a way that we might have been concerned about before. We don't need it now. 
the government did shy away from that because there, there was a sense in which this looked symbolically bad that you're taking you might take away the offense of racially aggravated harassment so it's still there it's still on the books it doesn't really extend the scope of the criminal law beyond other more, more, more general offences, but symbolically it, it was seen as valuable, so we're, we are keeping it in the legislative framework. That's so interesting. It, it brings me on to the next question, which, you know, one of the the billion dollar questions, because I don't think a million dollars would, would be enough uh, if you were able to answer this question, which is, you know, what is the most effective model uh, of hate crime legislation? You know, so you mentioned that the Scottish approach was developed in the context of a legal system, which is largely common law based, you know, so, so you, you don't have a codified uh, criminal system. And I suppose Ireland has uh, criminal legislation not completely codified, but you know, the, it, probably more so uh, than, than in Scotland. So it, is it really that jurisdictionally dependent or can we draw principles from what we know about the effectiveness of legislation across a range of models? To, to develop principles that could be applicable generally, or does it really all come down to the, the policies and practices of each jurisdiction then? I think you you can draw general principles, uh, but what you, you can't easily do, unless you have a very simple framework, such as one that simply says, take it into, into account in sentence, you, you can't simply cut and paste legislation from one jurisdiction to, to another. But the, the Scottish approach certainly is one that can be adapted for, uh, for, for elsewhere without, without, I think, too much difficulty. What I think it illustrates is the, the value potentially, and I think this would be true uh, of, of approaches elsewhere, of having something that is familiar, which is easy for, for police and prosecutors to, to apply, because you could create a, a very um, elaborate uh, framework that becomes very unattractive and, and doesn't get used very often because it's got a, a high uh, threshold in terms of what has to be proven. It, it adds in uh, additional hurdles which are difficult for police and prosecutors to, to surmount. I think that potentially is quite important when it comes to effectiveness, and we, we could look at that in, in different ways. But because hate crime legislation is typically looking at behaviour that, that would in any event be criminal, but trying to capture the, the hate element to that, almost by definition, you, you're adding in at that stage an additional burden, an additional hurdle for police and prosecutors to clear. And if you make that a very difficult one uh, to, to clear, then unless there's a very strong uh, pressure in practice uh, for those parties to do something different, there will be a very strong incentive simply not to use that, that legislation because it becomes easier to push cases through the criminal justice process. And so much of criminal justice is simply processing cases without giving yourself the, the extra work attached to that. So I, I think the, the familiarity uh, of this mechanism for Scottish police and prosecutors was, was probably an important one, but also the fact it was coupled with a, a strong political imperative to actually do something about this. So if hate crime legislation comes in with, without that political push behind it, then it becomes very easy for actors in the system to, to shrug their shoulders and, and, and go, well, we'll think about that. But you, you can see in some jurisdictions uh, where particular kinds of hate crime legislation have been introduced, 
the numbers just aren't, aren't very high. Um, and that may be because of that lack of political push, and it may be because the hurdles that are introduced there are, are difficult one, ones to surmount. But in that situation, if we measure the effectiveness by number of prosecutions brought, which may not be the best measure, but if we do that, the figures can be dramatically different between different uh, criminal justice systems. Thanks for that, James. And, uh, you know, I can concur with you in terms of the importance of having a strong policy to back up uh, the prosecution of hate crime. And, and in the uh, England and Wales, for example, there is a policy not to plea bargain the hate element off uh, of a crime. And that's quite strictly applied uh, in other countries where that policy isn't applied. You, you often see that the hate element will be sort of filtered out of the system because it's so much easier to prove uh, the basic offence without adding the hate element to it, especially at, at trial. I was really interested, though, that you, you said that the Scots approach, the hybrid approach, as I call it, um, could be sort of adopted elsewhere. And um, this is where Jennifer and I have a bit of beef because I also sort of advocate the Scots approach as uh, one that's probably easily adopted, um, not necessarily universally, because you have to take each jurisdiction as you find it, and there will be different nuances within, obviously, different civil and common law systems. But it is one that seems to sort of have the best of both worlds. You know, you've got the sort of, you have to prove the hate element at trial. It's labelled as a, a specific type of offence. It's got to be proved in court, so you have due process rights as well. And then, of course, it's uh, recorded on, on, on conviction. But it applies to all offences, so you don't have to just carve out special types of offences in the criminal law, which you think are most relevant to hate crime. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it can be adopted everywhere. And, and I wonder what um, Jennifer's thoughts are on whether it, that approach would work in Ireland. Uh, yeah, I, I think... It, Instinctively, the Scottish approach makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because, you know, you're not att attaching it to a particular offence. Um, and it is, you know, what we know about the operation of the aggravated offences provisions, for example, in England and Wales, is that, you know, where it's part of the charge, it will catch the attention of uh, prosecutors and catch the attention of the police and therefore be on their minds. And I think you mentioned this, James, as well, you know, from, from the beginning, from the investigative element, and it will be less likely to be disappeared through the criminal justice process. But I also think that something that you said, which is really crucial here, is that that approach is something that's very familiar uh, to police and prosecutors in Scotland, you know that that what Mark calls the hybrid approach, or we might call the Scottish approach, or, or whatever whatever label you want to put in it, it is something that instinctively legislators, policymakers, and criminal justice professionals would look at and go, "Huh, yeah, okay, that makes sense to me." You know that that's familiar, and that's the way we do business here. Whereas I suppose uh, I, I take a more cautious approach and more conservative approach to, to law reform generally. Uh, and that the, the Scottish approach, I think, is so dissimilar uh, to the way that we do business uh, in this jurisdiction that I would worry that it simply wouldn't be used, you know, that it would be. Uh, it wouldn't capture the attention of the police and prosecutors because their attention would still be on the the assault or, or the harassment or the criminal damage or whatever it is. I, I also don't know if we can do, you know, the the uh, the general uplift, you know, that that you could uh, do. So I suppose that's where my my concerns would be. Just from it's it's not the way we do criminal law. 
uh, here. And, and that's why that I, I had those concerns. Um, I think that's a really good point, actually. And, um, I think it, the Scots approach could tend to work better in jurisdictions where hate crime as a concept and as a legal concept is more mature, where there's already a really strong policy domain, where prosecutors already know that they need to prosecute the hate element along with the basic offence. I think it's a really good point. And I think having aggravated offences on the statute books has been a real strength in the English and Welsh approach and the research that, that I carried out a few years ago. Uh, tended to show that the aggravated offences were those where prosecutors really knew what the rules were, judges knew what the rules were, and they were applied quite strictly. And the sentencing provisions attached at the very back end of the criminal process less likely to be used. So I do think that's a really uh, important point. So we, we don't disagree on everything. One, one aspect of the, the Scottish provisions, which I think is, is interesting here, is that although it does rely on the familiarity of, of the actors in the system with this kind of mechanism, there was a provision from, from the earliest legislation saying at the sentencing stage, not only does this have to be taken into account, the judge has to articulate what difference it has made to the sentence, and if it hasn't made a difference, uh, explain why, why that is, is the case. Now, that's something that judges have, I think, been a, a bit uncomfortable with, simply saying that the sentencing isn't actually that mechanistic a, a, a procedure. We, we don't add things up in these little boxes and, and, and come to this conclusion uh, at the end. Um, but that provision, nevertheless, has been retained in the latest legislative framework. So that, that was one mechanism that was used to try and avoid this situ situation where it didn't really make a difference or where a judge could simply state, this is one of many factors I, I have taken into account. Um, and it's interesting how I think there was a view that that was certainly appropriate when the legislation came in, maybe less necessary now, but even so, the government uh, didn't accept a recommendation to get rid of that provision again, like keeping racially aggravated harassment. It was felt that was symbolically a, um, an unattractive approach to, to take that formal step rec recognition out, out of the process. I think we should also, just for the sake of completeness, uh, highlight the discretionary approach that is currently in operation in Ireland. Um, so the general scheme of the Criminal Justice Hate Crime Bill was published a couple of months ago. But we are, I suppose, that the Department of Justice is currently considering the changes recommended by the Oireachtas Committee, the Parliamentary Committee on Justice, with respect to that. So currently, the approach is that it is at the discretion of judges whether they take the aggravated uh, provision into account now. What we have found in research that Professor Amanda Haynes and I have done is that, you know, the, the courts will sometimes take it into account, will sometimes not take it into account. But I, th I think from a due process, and, and you're quite right, Mark, I think, to highlight the importance of due process in all of these conversations, is that sometimes judges, uh, criminal justice professionals told us, almost looked around the evidence, you know, and saw a hate element present in the case when there wasn't one and um, you know so where there was no evidence presented uh, that the crime was in any way hate motivated or that hate was even involved the judge explicitly stated that they were aggravation the sentence on the ground of racial aggravation and i suppose wh where we take that discretionary approach without sort of the rules and guidelines that you mentioned james i think that there are concerns there as well as to the operation. We have an almost completely discretionary system here with respect to sentencing anyway, but I think the research that we did really highlights the particularly problematic nature of that approach with respect to hate crime. 
we spent a lot of time talking about the, the, the laws and I suppose we, within any hate crime statute, we also have to choose what's referred to as a model of law. And James, can you help us out by just again briefly uh, describing what the main models are then? Okay, so in, in terms of, of, of different models, uh, although the, the language of hate crime obviously sounds quite clear, there has to be some kind of statement in, in the legislation about what it is that actually amounts to, to a hate crime. And very, very few jurisdictions actually use the word hate. So, so instead, there, there has to be some sort of threshold specified. And if you specify hate, you're, you're going to capture very, very few instances of, uh, of of hate crime, because that is a very high threshold. It's a, a very difficult one to prove. So there are two main approaches here. One is to, to look at, as it is done in some jurisdictions, the way in which the victim of the crime has been selected, a, a discriminatory selection model. The second approach is what's often called an, an animus mo model to look at the demonstration of hostility or bias or potentially hate uh, in the context uh, of, of the offending. And the approach that has been taken in United Kingdom jurisdictions is that second, that animus mo model approach, but not to look purely at the motivation of the offender. Now, that, that's something that may be the basis uh, for, for a charge, but motive is much more difficult to prove. So instead, what a charge can be based on is that demonstration of, in England, hostility, or in Scotland, malice and ill will. So a very simple example, the, the fact that somebody uses racist language while they are committing a criminal offence can satisfy that, that hate crime element. And that therefore there's no defence for that person to say, well, actually, I would have used terrible language to anyone, and this was just the terrible language I used for this vic victim. You know, that, that's... Although there have been some attempts sometimes by, by defendants to claim that that's defence, it's clearly not in, ter in terms of, of the legislation. And using that model uh, does uh, allow for a much larger number of, of hate crimes to, to be identified than if you actually require proof of, of motive, uh, which is, a much, as I said, a much more difficult thing to establish. And you'll find that jurisdictions that use the animus model, and my analysis of hate crime laws globally revealed that it's about 190 plus jurisdictions around the world that have some form of hate crime legislation and about half of those use the animus model and the other half use some form of discriminatory model um, but most of those do use motive as part of the legal test to prove the animus as part of other, other hate crime offense most of those use motive which um, is really a part of, sort of the mens rea element the mental element of an offence and you're referring to the UK approach where they also have this more objective standard in case what Baroness Hell in, in the case of our Rogers talks about outward manifestation of hostility but that's that's used in UK jurisdictions plus UK-linked jurisdictions around the world, those jurisdictions that have often based their laws on English law. Do you think it's justified in law, legal theory or legal doctrine to have a hate element proved without there being necessarily some form of intention or some form of mens rea that proves that someone is actually hateful, they are actually prejudiced as a person? I, I think that is right. Now, 
there may be an issue here that, like like most lawyers, I'm being slightly defensive about my own jurisdiction and, and what I'm familiar with. So my instinct will, will be to say that is the, the right model, of course. And, and you're quite right. It's, it's, it's not just worldwide the normal model to be used. It's a, a small number of jurisdictions that, that use it. There is that practical justification of it being difficult to identify and prove things as, as being hate crimes without it. But of course, the obvious response to that is to say, well, but maybe those things aren't hate crimes. So there, there has to be a, a justification of, of principle for, for using this. And there, I, I think the, the answer is something that the effect on the victim is the same, regardless of whether the offender is later on able to say, well, actually, I didn't really mean it. I was just using hateful language. I'm, I'm, not, really, I'm not really a racist. I just say racist things. That's going to be a great quote to be cut out of context. But with, with hate crime, with offenders that carry out what are already criminal offences, but accompany those, those offences with these objective indicators of, of, of hate, the, the racist or homophobic language, for, for example, those are uh, instances which we, we know have particularly damaging effects on, on, on individuals personally, damaging effects on, on their communities more broadly. They, they are the effects that can create this culture of, of fear and insecurity. So turning the question around, should it be a defence for somebody to say, I'm not racist, I, I just say racist things? I, no, I don't think that should be. I, I, I think the person who says racist things while committing a criminal offence has put themselves in the category of people who are committing hate crimes and, and should be recognised as such. Yeah, I, I completely see what you mean, James. And I think that we would agree, and probably Mark, I think, would also agree to a, quite a significant degree on, on all of what you said. I suppose where I would depart is, again, thinking about something that you said earlier about the labelling of uh, and appropriate labelling of, of criminals. And I think that there is something qualitatively different about somebody who is motivated by hatred and somebody who, to use the, the language of UK statutes, who demonstrates hatred during the course of the offence. And I think by labelling the two in the same way, I think we are probably doing them a disservice or certainly I, I would have concerns, I think, with respect to, to the labelling and equating the two that we are that we are not appropriately labelling individuals as hate crimers or hate criminals where they say something racist during the course of an offence is does that person deserve the same label and, and it's not that there's degrees you know this is going on somebody's permanent record it's not that well they were a bit racist or they were horribly racist <laughs> they're still going to get the same label uh, and on their criminal record and we know from research again that Professor Haynes and I have done uh, along with Professor Ross Macmillan that people are less likely to employ somebody who has criminal record of a hate crime as compared to a similar offence. And so I would be concerned there. And again, I suppose coming from a jurisdiction where we don't have any hate crime legislation, again, taking that slowly but surely approach, you know, rather than kind of come in with a very broad uh, swathe of legislation, what we have done in, in the legislation and what I think is the right thing to do is kind of take a very, very narrow definition at the beginning which can then potentially be, be broadened but as the law commission said you can't narrow hate crime legislation you're sending the wrong message so yeah I, I suppose i think we'd all agree to a point and then we might diverge and i think that point about the 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 label the effects of in terms of criminal record is, is a really important one and if i were to almost to play devil's advocate and try to make an argument against 
uh, hate crime legislation uh, as we find in the UK. It, it is, a, as you say, something which is very broad. A lot of people do get marked out as, for example, um, ra racist uh, offenders. And we know from the research in England Wales and also, there's less data, but it is there in Scotland that people are very reluctant to plead guilty to racially aggravated uh, or aggravated other forms of prejudice charges. Quite often, they're, they're willing to plead, plead guilty if they can negotiate away that element. Prosecutors, uh, on the other hand, have a very strong presumption of not negotiating uh, away that part. Because having a criminal record for, say, in Scotland, a minor offence like breach of the peace is very different from having a criminal uh, record for breach of the peace aggravated by prejudice. One thing is that, that we may have to bear in mind there is the, the interaction between these provisions and, in the UK, rehabilitation of, of offenders legislation. So at least if an offence is a relatively minor one, and that's reflected in the sentence, a conviction is only disclosable for a short period of time, but that may still have very severe effects on, on an individual. And there are, of course, a, a, a lot of uh, situations, increasing number of situations where convictions do, do not become spent and may form part of an enhanced disclosure about somebody's criminal record. So that there is an issue about the, just the severity of attaching that, that label to somebody for fairly minor wrongdoing and potentially attaching it to them in some ways for, for a very long time. I think it's a really important point about labelling, and it's a bit of a double-edged sword in terms of the fact that if you label someone as a hater, I mean, what does that do to them post-conviction in terms of reintegrating back into society and being less likely to reoffend at the same time? If we fail to label an offence which has been committed quite violently. And during that, the commission of that offence, there's been some form of um, violent racism or homophobia used. If we don't label that as a hate crime, and it's, you know, it's a conscious thing, isn't it, to do to, to use racism during the commission of an offence to say something racist, it, it has the effect, as James was saying, of subjugating that individual and it could have a ripple effect out to the community. If we say, if we say oh, that's not a hate crime, it's only a hate crime if you are truly motivated by it. Then I, my fear is that it under, undermines the concept itself. If you say to a victim who's just been punched in the face and someone said the N-word, for example, or, or something you know terrible like a homophobic slur, you say to them, sorry, you're not a hate crime victim because he just said it in the heat of the moment. He didn't really mean it. How is it going to impact that victim? What kind of confidence are they going to have in the justice system to come forward if the police tell them, sorry, you know, that you're not a hate crime victim. And so that would be my concern. I think the labelling part is, um, is linked to that, but I think we have to deal with that by thinking about what's an effective post-conviction intervention. Okay, the criminal law and its labelling effect is one thing, but how do we deal with it post-conviction? If we're just going to punish someone more uh, for it, then I have some, some issues with that. That's a different podcast altogether, but I do think it's important that an objective expression of prejudice is... is is labelled as a hate crime. No, I and I, I completely agree. Do you know, and this is where Mark and I have our most interesting uh, WhatsApp conversations. You know, it's sort of, and um, one approach is to look at the experience of the victim and to see how the victim experienced something. And the other is to consider, well, what is the impact of this label uh, on the offender? And we, we have gone, and I think probably we'll always go over and back on this. And again, the jurisdiction specific nature uh, that, that I come from is there's, you know, the, the spent convictions legislation operates very, very minimally. And 
this is something that will be on the record of an individual for the rest of their days. And we have no real system of restorative justice in place uh, at the moment. And so that's why I kind of advocate for this hybrid approach, you know, so we have a very, very narrow model associated with aggravated offences, which would go on the record of the individual. And then for aggravated sentencing, where it won't go on the record, but it's something that the judge can take into account that you could have a broader model, you know, the, the demonstration test or even something like the by reason of our discriminatory model, discriminatory selection test either. And yes, I understand that there are also due process implications there, but I think that that is, to me, the the appropriate balance between the two. Although, as as I said, uh, Mark, you would would tilt the balance, I suppose, the other way, right? Yeah, I mean, mean, that's right. I think for me, if, you know, any kind of criminal offence where there's an expression of prejudice which subjugates the victim needs to be labelled as a hate crime and has to be prosecuted as a hate crime. And I think what we need to do is work really hard at the back end to think about what measures can be used, rehabilitation, community and restorative justice, which perhaps will uh, diminish the the negative effects of uh, stigmatising someone uh, as a hater. And I think it's a double-edged sword. I don't think it's a perfect answer, because if you want to label something as a particular type of offence, ultimately the individual who commits the offence will be labelled as that type of offender. And you have to balance that with what are the needs of victims and communities who are are marginalised by hate crime. I mean, uh, linked uh, linked to this is is this issue of you know the objective test and the motive uh, the motivation test and the the text of the Irish bill. My understanding is that uh, there would be a motivation test. Now, one of the things that Jennifer and I again have discussed quite a bit is whether there should be a motivation test. And uh, there is some research, both in the US and Europe, that suggests where a jurisdiction just relies on a motivation test, very few uh, cases are successfully prosecuted. Uh, And the reason for that, and I can quote Justice Rafferty in the English case of DPP in Green, is that the search for a specific motive can be elusive and complex. That is why the establishment of criminal liability does not generally require it. James, what are your thoughts on jurisdictions that just rely on a motivation test to prove the hate element. I think I think there it's easy to understand why a jurisdiction might instinctively think, well, this is the, the appropriate way to go about it, because you mentioned earlier yeah, the need for, for men's rare. We need to actually prove what it is that makes someone culpable. My own view is that that is the wrong way of looking at, at this, because the demonstration of hostility is not something which happens accidentally. Now, this is not an instance of of strict liability being imposed on the person. People do not use racist um, language, homophobic language, ableist language by accident. They are are deliberately making a choice to use that sort of of language, to use those sorts of epithets um, where they they occur in the context of of a criminal offence. Now, it may be true that those choices do not reflect particularly deep-seated prejudice, but the law is not trying only to, to combat deep-seated uh, prejudice. It's trying to combat the, the kind of casual prejudice, the, the prejudice that we see in everyday life when it occurs in, in the context of, of wrongdoing. And those cases may be more minor than, uh, than others, but we would never say with, with violent offences that it should exempt somebody from liability, that they were just casually violent rather than having a deep-rooted propensity for, for, for violence. These are people who have made a choice to, to exhibit that prejudice 
in the context of, of wrongdoing, which is already criminal. They're, they're not being held guilty for their, their thoughts alone. And I think it is appropriate for a, a legal system to, to mark that out as a hate crime. Yeah, and, and I think that when I first looked at the, the general scheme of the Criminal Justice Hate Crime Bill 2021, it looked as if in the aggravation offences it was a pure motivation test, but then tucked at the bottom of head eight of the general scheme and said wholly or partly, that the offence should be wholly or partly motivated by prejudice is the term that's used uh, in the in the legislation. Again, we could have a whole other podcast uh, on, on the, the what the definition of hate is, but I think that wholly or partly part kind of ameliorate some of the, the concerns that uh, you highlighted there, Mark. The, the last question that I have is, if we were to put our heads together, taking into account all of the various disagreements that Mark and I had, and, and we were to come up with what we agreed was the best piece of hate crime legislation possible, you know, so this is the gold standard. Is it possible for that, or, or I suppose I'm asking a deeply rhetorical question here, and, and I should really answer it myself and say, it, it's not possible, is it, for that legislation to operate simply by itself? And so there has to be all of those uh, policy and implementation supports behind them. And I think that in England and Wales, you see this in spades, um, do, do you know, sort of, that the, the, the legislation itself is accompanied by a great many number of policies and procedures uh, and so on. Um, James, how, how important do you see the, that the underlying implementation measures as to um, the importance, uh, or how, how important do you see them uh, as being? I think it's hugely important. There is a symbolic uh, value in having hate criminal on, on the books, and for some jurisdictions it's a way of symbolise, as I think was true in the UK jurisdictions, the kind of country that we believe we are and the kind of country we believe we, we want to be. But there are huge differences in the extent to which hate crime legislation is, is used in practice and actually enforced. So Mark mentioned earlier just the sheer number of countries that, that do have some form of hate crime legislation. In some of those countries, we know that there are a lot of prosecutions that would be true in, in the UK. In some jurisdictions, the numbers look quite small. I think in some jurisdictions, we just don't really know at all how much legislation is used. If it, if it is even, even used. Now, there is that symbolic value, but it's not a great value. And it's a value that will be degraded over time if a shiny piece of hate crime legislation is passed and actually not meaningfully in, enforced. So that institutional impetus to actually enforce this legislation is, is hugely important. Also, as, as Mark talked about earlier, what might happen after the conviction is hugely important as well. And, and that, I think, gets neglected in perhaps almost all jurisdictions, that it's thought to be enough that you've, you've got the outcome, you've, you've got the sentence, you're then just in with the general mix of how does the legal system deal with anybody who's been convicted of, of anything, to which the answer is typically not very well. Thanks, James. I couldn't agree more. And I just want to thank you again for your very insightful contributions to today's podcast. Again, we end with no resolution to what are quite complex questions. I hope you've uh, enjoyed this, the discussions nonetheless. And uh, I thank you for listening. And until next time, take care. Hate Crime on the Two Islands is a podcast funded by the European Centre for the Study of Hate at the University of Limerick, written by Mark Walters and Jennifer Schwepp, and produced by Mark Walters, Jennifer Schwepp and Kate O'Donovan.